Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Welcome, 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 students of the digital age, to another Tech Talk with our coach for the post-COVID era, Mr. Matthew Dickerson. It's been another big week in lockdown, Matt. What's distracted you from the worries of the world this week? Oh, it's interesting you say post-COVID era. I can't even think about post-COVID era at this yeah. stage, James. Yeah, it's a world we live in. It is. We're still doing our <laughs> podcast remotely. Oh, actually, the feedback from last week was good. When we did our first one remotely, I got some feedback from clients and they said they couldn't really tell. Every now and again, there'd be a slight delay, but they couldn't really tell we weren't sitting in the same room. So that's been a good thing. Yeah, we're a long way away from the old STD handheld phone sets and a long way away from those. The thing that's really been taking a lot of my attention and focus the last week has been Flubot. Flubot, when people are at home and they're sitting there and they're just getting bombarded with electronics, with messages, with a whole range of things dealing with their electronics, the messages they've got coming in from Flubot have just been incredible. And people yeah, are confused right. by them. They're annoyed by them. They're intrigued by them, all the rest of it. They're definitely annoying. Definitely annoying. That's right. And one of our topics, I've got a topic today, we talk about it in more detail. So I won't go into more detail about it. But that's really been the thing that's been the distraction, if you like, over the last week in lockdown. I mean, lockdown's a distraction in itself. But on top of that, you've got this annoyance. And it's almost, James, almost as if some of these scammers know that we're on our phones more and they're really taking advantage of that. That that wouldn't be right, would it? Surely not. Well, look, yeah, if there's a crack there to prize open, they'll find it and they will prize it away. Yeah. Yeah. Look, in today's program, we ask how many subscriptions. There's too many subscriptions for you to get on your your apps. We'll uh, introduce you to Lab Milk and we'll also uh, look at a new smartwatch that's going to measure body fat. One for the fitness freaks out there. But in the meantime, remember the days when we used to go out? <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Remember when when you couldn't find a car park because everyone else had the same idea, or at least the ones who got there first weren't budging for hours and hours and hours? Well, no one likes a parking fine, but rotating car parking spaces is essential for retail trade in the CBD of towns and cities. And, well, it looks like there's a tech solution to literally help keep the traffic rolling, Matt. Absolutely. And it is funny at the moment, isn't it? You do go downtown, you go to the supermarket, buy some essentials, and you can park wherever you want. It's fascinating. So you've got to look for the silver lining in lockdown. It's a return to yesteryear. <laughs> That's right. But I remember many years ago, there was a solution that we actually looked at when I was involved with council. We looked at this as a possible solution. And the solution for the good old-fashioned brown bomber, I'm sure they're not called brown bombers anymore, but the parking inspectors that used to walk along and put the bit of chalk on your tyre and then someone would come and rub off the bit of chalk on the tyre. The solution for that, or a potential solution, was driving a car along and it was actually photographing number plates of people that were parked either nose in or rear in. And if it would come back around in the prescribed time, one hour, two hours, whatever it might be, it would know, oh, I know that number plate. I know that that's been there for a certain amount of time. So then stop and go and give them a ticket. It seemed like a clumsy sort of technology solution. It almost seemed like using technology for the sake of technology because you still had a person driving the car. You still went around then stopped it and then gave a ticket out. This new solution, though, which is actually being set up over in Bunbury in WA, this new solution is much smarter than that. And the thing that I really like about it is you don't even need a ticket in the first place. Most people that have got parking areas with tickets, they'll pull up, they'll get out and they'll go to the parking meter, they'll put their credit card against it and they'll pull out their little ticket and put it in their dash and then make sure they come back before that amount of time. Bunbury's retailers, when this was first introduced several years ago of having paid parking, 
they were really worried about the idea of people finding it too clumsy mm. so they wouldn't park and so those retailers would miss out. So they introduced some free parking. After the free parking, you then had to start paying for it. This new solution says, don't worry about having a ticket. Don't worry about the fact that you're going to have to pay for some parking. We'll just give you a couple of hours of free parking, but that's it. You've then got to move on. And what they do is they install sensors along the footpath. So they replace the old box where you go and swipe your credit card. And the sensors know that that car, there's a a blue Corolla that's pulled up with number plate ABC123. And it senses that. And if that car is still there two hours later, say it's a two-hour parking spot, the parking inspector gets notified by an electronic tool. And then they come along and give you a ticket. So they're still employing those people, but they're not just walking along aimlessly, randomly marking tyres. They're actually being directed to where someone has been for too long and then giving those people a fine. So they become like dive bombers then. (laughs) So they give it a target, they (laughs) boom. Get a ticket and get out of there. No longer brown bombers, they're dying. <laughs> they're less of an easy target for the person who's on the sidewalk who wants to challenge them on their, uh, on, on their job. Well, that's yeah, exactly right yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine they'd have some interesting conversations along those lines. Oh, dear. But the idea here is also because they're all interlinked, if someone parks in one spot and then they sneakily say, oh, there's a parking spot right next door, I'll just back out of that one and move into that one, which used to happen with the chalk on the tyre scenario. Mm then this picks it up. So it's got a minimum distance you've got to move. So they don't want people just shuffling along one car parking spot at a time. They want proper rotation of their parking in the CBD. Yeah, and it's about giving the the businesses in that CBD a fair go and getting a fair rotation of commercial traffic there. Yeah, That's exactly right. And you don't want staff in those businesses to pull up, park there all day. Oh, I won't get fined if I park here. Everything's fine because then the shoppers aren't going to come and park there. So it's a good little technology solution. I like what they're doing with it over in Bunbury. Obviously, we can't go over there and check it out, James. But one day, one day, we'll be able to travel again and we'll be able to go over there and park our car and see how it all works. Yeah, right. Well, look, I know some people are going to see this as revenue raising, but uh, as the country slowly reopens, measures like this are ultimately going to support those small businesses that have suffered uh, in the CBDs of cities and regional centres around the country. But just, you know, just maintaining that traffic flow. Yeah, and I suppose part of the thing is this is a good time to do it. There's obviously more of an opportunity to put some infrastructure projects together and also more of an opportunity to do it while there's not as many cars around. So it seems like maybe a funny time to do it, but it makes sense for the future. Now, we've discussed lab meat before, but what about lab-made dairy products? Real milk, but no cows needed. This is interesting. It is interesting, isn't it? We did have a good chat about the lab meat, and that generated a huge amount of discussion. But it certainly generated some interest because I think it's fascinating for people that the idea of having meat that's not actually part of an animal originally at some point in time. But it's still meat. Yeah, It's still meat. And that's exactly where we are with dairy products. And dairy products are actually a lot easier to produce than meat, for example. So dairy products have only got a few molecules, a few different substances in them. It's mostly water. Mm. And the other things that are in them are quite easy to produce. So this is at the point now where basically milk is being brewed in the lab. It's a fermentation process they're using. And so it's a real problem actually for regulators to decide what truly makes something milk, what truly makes something cheese. Mm. Does it have to be from a cow to be defined as milk, or if it just is the same substance as milk, is that good enough? Well, this is the thing. A lot of people talk about chemicals, and I don't want chemicals in my body, but the food we eat is made of chemicals, and if we can just get the same chemicals, mix them together in the same way, then you are, you're effectively, if if it's milk, and and you just got the chemicals of milk, then you're drinking milk, right? It's, It's just been made a little bit more efficiently than it would if it had gone through a cow. 
That's right. And tell me this, what's the definition, James, of a chemical? Yeah, I know. Is a chemical just a compound? Yeah, that's what it is. You know, it's a compound. So so what, everything that we eat, everything that goes in our mouth is a chemical. Yeah. But people don't like chemicals and, and we're eating chemicals every day. It's just about putting those chemicals together in a different way. And so the milk is made of chemicals that comes from a cow. Well, we're just getting those chemicals and we're sticking them together in a different way. Yeah, and that's exactly what they're talking about here. The people that are producing milk in this way say that if an animal can make it, then it's pretty likely that we can make it too, which I think is exactly the point you're making, that it probably is the case. If it can be put together by an animal, it can be put together in a laboratory. One of the interesting things is in America, the FDA defines milk as the lactal secretion practically free from cholesterol obtained by the complete milking of one or more healthy cows. Ah, cows feature in the definition. (laughs) That's right. So that's the definition of milk by the FDA. I would argue that the definition of milk is the chemical compounds that make up that milk rather than the fact that it came from a cow. So I think this is one of the things that I see a lot in technology. Regulators have got to catch up with where technology is headed. If we can produce milk in the laboratory, fantastic. I think people that may not have enough milk to drink, they get this, they can use it. It's going to be just the same as a cow milk, but... According to the FDA, it won't actually be milk. And it'll be produced a lot more efficiently because you haven't got to worry about all the other stuff that a cow has to worry about in building muscle, in staying healthy, and all those other ways that energy is expended by a cow eating grass. But milk is just one of those things. And so if we can just have a way that efficiently produces that milk. Now, we're not trying to run dairy farmers out of business. I think there will always be a market and a strong market for naturally grown milk. But we've got to feed a population that's approaching 8 billion, heading towards 9 billion in a hurry and there is just no way that we can do that with the space that is required with the resources that are required to feed cattle so the next step after this one james there are two companies in the u.s now that have gone this process and they've decided to go a step further they've said well if we abuse cow's milk in the laboratory what about human milk Mm -hmm. so they're actually at the point now where they're producing human breast milk now it's only in the testing stage but again it's just chemicals I must admit, my first thought was a bit squeamish. And why should you feel squeamish if it was actually made in the laboratory? I can't talk about much about what um, goes into baby formula, but people are prepared to dissolve this powder into a, into a little bottle and shake it up with some water and, and feed it to their babies. Well, oh, why would they have a problem with um, yeah this otherwise synthesised um, human breast milk? Yeah, there's a huge, huge market that's built in there, James. I think, as you say, the population is growing. Mm. And it's harder and harder to keep producing the amount of food we need. So I expect we'll see more of this. If you're not comfortable with it, if you don't like the idea of lab-produced products, then... Time to head for the hills. Buy yourself a patch of land out in the middle of nowhere and see how you go as a hermit. Uh, Because it's just going to be there, I think. I agree. Enough of stirring the pot there. Here's one to interest our amateur triathletes and professional sports people alike. There's a smartwatch coming out of the market that now measures your body fat. I've always been a bit suspicious on the whole BMI index, Matt, but what sort of wrist-based magical crystal hocus-pocus is this? It does sound crazy. I can remember a watch that I had many, many years ago. I like my technology. I've always been a fan of different types of technology. And I had a watch that had a chest band so I could check my heart rate. It had a thing that was huge. It was on my shoulder. It used to actually strap to my shoulder, Mm. and that was the GPS component of it. So my watch could communicate with my chest band and my arm band to actually know where I was and what my heart rate was doing. And I thought this was the bee's knees. I thought this was fantastic. Look at all this technology. (laughs) 
<laughs> at the time it was a cutting edge technology. It was like those old brick phones that people used to carry around with that had the satchel with the battery in it. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's right, the, the handbag, the man bag. <laughs> that's right. So now we're at the point, we know how far watches have progressed in terms of what they can do and the, the readings they can give us. You've got electrocardiographs, you've got heart rates, and now we're at the point with the body fat percentage. Now, you're right, with BMI, BMI is interesting. I don't mind the concept of BMI for average people like myself. Mm. I do look at my BMI and make sure I'm within the right range. But it's a bit crazy when you look at a professional athlete, a professional who's got a lot of muscle on them, Mm. the BMI is just through the roof. They're all obese or morbidly obese according to BMI because muscle is heavier than fat. That's been my excuse for a long time. (laughs) That's that's the problem, is it? (laughs) This is an audio medium, which is fantastic for both of us, James. (laughs) So, So the concept with this watch is that it actually goes and checks your body fat in a more scientific method. It actually puts a very small amount of electricity through your body, through your skin, and fat and muscle have different amounts of resistance, so it actually gets a different amount of transmission. Mm. I've seen scales out for a while. In fact, I've got some, of course, because they're technology-related. Of course, I've got some. Mm. I've got some scales that I stand on that will also give me a BMI reading by putting a small amount of electricity through my feet and then checking the amount of body fat and the amount of muscle, etc., through that process. But to get it down to the point where it's a watch, that just seems incredible. So this watch will do electrocardiograph. It will do heart rate. It will do now the whole concept of BMI and give you a BMI reading that's very accurate. They did a lot of testing against machines that actually do this as a professional level. If you go to a nutritionist maybe or someone who's involved in the health industry, maybe professional athletes, they will get these body fat readings by machines that cost $100,000 and go bing. Mm. But they actually did tests against this watch and the machines that do it properly and they were always within maybe 5% of the right reading. So quite incredible. Yeah, right. But surely it's got something to do with the water content as well because the conductivity is is a function of of how much water. So if I've drunk a lot of water or if I'm a bit dehydrated, surely that would have have an effect on it. It actually is transmitting electric currents through our body and relying on the conductivity of that water. The amount of water in fat compared to the amount of water in muscle is different, which Mm. is how they then calculate the body fat percentage. Yeah, right, okay. But it's not, unless you're extremely dehydrated or had hyponatremia because you drink way too much water, the actual amount of water in your muscle and fat varies as you have higher and lower levels of dehydration in your body. So effectively, yes, if you drink lots of water, you'd have more water in your body, but it would be more water in the muscle and the fat. So it seems to give a fairly accurate reading as long as you're not at an extreme level of dehydration or hydration. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, it's going to be definitely interesting to see if this catches on uh, and how quickly it moves out the door. Certainly makes for an interesting addition to to those of me, like me who uh, like to put spreadsheets out on their uh, activities and, and this gives us something else to measure. So uh, <laughs> anyone who wants to share uh, a good spreadsheet, I'm open to uh, a session <laughs> of exercise spreadsheet sharing. Have you missed a parcel lately, folks? Did you receive a text letting you know? Warning, you know, parcel delivery texts are now the most common contract. And here I was thinking I was the only one. <laughs> Tell us about these contracts, these flu bots. This is the thing that I mentioned at the very beginning of the show. The flu bot is the major malware infecting every country just about around the world. Mm. Now, the interesting part is that they've only really just come to Australia. They've been in Europe now for some time. And in Europe, they were focused on 
parcels. You've missed a parcel. Hey, you want to get your parcel? There's a parcel waiting for you, that type of thing. Yeah, I've had a dozen of those just recently, yeah. And so in Australia, they seem to be more focused on voicemail, but in Europe, it was really around parcels. And so you get the message and you say, oh, okay, click on the link. And that's not an uncommon thing to do. You click on the link and you'll go and look at the information. When you click on that link, it then says to view the status of your parcel, you just need to have this app on there. Click on this link to get the app. And so for many people, they think, oh, okay, I must need an app to do that. I'll click on the app. Mm. But when you click on that, that actually infects your phone with some malware, which does a couple of things. The first thing it does is looks for your contact list because we don't want all your friends missing out on this either. So (laughs) it sends the same message to all of your friends. Somewhere out there, I've got a friend who's clicked on the app. Is that what you're telling me? Not necessarily. That's a possibility. Right, okay. But what they also do is they just do random number generators. Yeah. So they're generating numbers continually and sending out those messages. Now, the interesting part here is that when someone talks about getting spammed email, you don't really care if you're a spammer about sending out millions, even billions of emails because the cost to send an email is zero. Mm. You need an internet connection, which is a minimal cost, and you can just go and send out millions and billions of emails. The difference with the text message is there's no easy way to send that for free, except your phone plan, James, has got free text messaging. So if I can get onto your phone and use your phone to send text messages, Mm. then that's great. If I'm just someone who wants to send bulk text messages to my customers, I've got to pay for that. But if I use your phone or someone else's phone or someone else's phone to do it, suddenly I've got free text messages. Jeez, the crims are getting cheap these days. (laughs) Aren't they? <laughs> At I least pay for your text yeah. messaging. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So the first thing is it sends out to people in your address book, and it also might send out messages to random numbers that it generates. The second thing it does, which is the scariest part, is it puts an invisible overlay on your phone. Mm. And what that does is sends to someone out there who's obviously setting up this malware, every keystroke, everything that you type into your phone and everything that you see. So your good old-fashioned two-factor authentication when you log on to your bank and your bank says, oh, I'll just make sure this is you, James. I'll send you a text message. You get your four-digit text code, six-digit text code, whatever it may be, and you're ready to type that into your bank. Someone at the other end also sees that same message so they can try and get into your bank. So that's the real scary part with this. Now, you do notice when you pick it up because some strange things happen, and I've actually seen a few of our clients that have been infected by this particular malware, and they can see it because some strange things start happening to their phone, the messages start to be a bit garbled, just things don't seem to be quite right, and they are smart enough then to say something's happened here. Mm. But the thing you're really going to not like about this is it only affects Android phones. Oh, no! So you'll get the message if you're an iPhone because the scammers don't really know whether you've got an iPhone or an Android phone, but the actual link that you click on to try and install an app, it's actually an Android app it's trying to install. It's not an iPhone app it's trying to install. So you might get the messages as an iPhone user, but if you click on the link, and I'm not saying click on the link, but if you did click on the link, it would take you to something that would mean nothing to an iPhone. Whereas to an Android user, click on the link, and click on the link again, and the next thing you know, you've infected yourself with malware. Goodness me. So it is quite incredible. And one of the things that I thought of when I was looking at this and just going through this is the sixth most famous computer virus in the world was the Anaconda virus. It was way back in 2001. And I remember it well because we had a lot of our clients at the time that were impacted by it and we had to clean up lots of computers. But the thing that really struck me was that after that virus took over the world and after that virus had a major impact on people across the world, six months later, they did a survey and they said, if you received an email that said anaconda.jpg.vbs, 
would you still click on it thinking that it might be a picture of Anna Konnikova? Now, this virus had wreaked havoc across the world. (laughs) 15% of people in the survey said, I'd still click on the link because it might be a photo of Anna Konnikova. And so (laughs) that curiosity is what kills the cat. And that's the problem here is that you get that message, whether it be you've missed a voicemail, you've missed a parcel, whatever it might be, people are so curious. Oh, I've got a parcel. Oh, fantastic. I wonder who sent me a parcel. I didn't order anything, but I wonder who sent me a parcel. And they go and click on the link. Uh, So many Homer Simpsons out there, it's not funny. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) They've got impulse only. But look, yeah, we we keep hearing of these stories of people who fall for these scams. And the trick is for the fraudsters to just have enough enough cover to catch someone in a moment of weakness uh, and they can follow through with a sucker punch leaving reasonably intelligent people feeling totally stupid and well out of pocket. And the other thing is that people will see lots of spelling errors mm. and some people have commented to me going, well, surely they're making enough money out of this they could pay some English translator to just get their spelling right. But that's very deliberate because if the messages all were identical and they had the same message, the carriers would quite easily be able to block that sequence of characters. Mm. Anyone that gets a sequence of characters, we know that's a part of this scam, block that. What they do is they make spelling errors, mix it up. I've seen so many different spellings of voicemail, it's just incredible. But they mix it up deliberately so it makes it so much harder for the carriers to then say, oh, when you see this sequence of characters or this sequence of characters and this sequence of characters, Mm. then block it. And you don't want to block people's legitimate text messages as well. So it's a challenge for everyone. Well, if it didn't work, we wouldn't keep getting these stupid text messages. At least that's what my pen pal tells me. He's a Nigerian prince, you know. <laughs> He's really, really wealthy. Looking forward to giving you some money one day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> COVID detection methods. They take another step forward. Now the UK government are trialling the sound of people's coughs and are getting people to record it for an app as part of diagnoses. Now, the results are pretty strong here, Matt. Is that right? They are very strong. It actually started over in Massachusetts at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. MIT, yeah. MIT, that's right. So they developed an algorithm late last year, which was effective 98.5% of the time for a COVID infection just by a cough. Wow. But they didn't have a huge sample space. And so they worked on that a little bit. But then the NHS in England said, well, maybe what we should do is actually start to increase that sample space to get a lot more samples to really refine this algorithm. So they've started doing that now. And basically, the idea here is that you can download this app. And if you've had a COVID test recently, they want you to cough into the app. They want you to breathe into the app and say a certain text. They've got a certain text sequence for you to speak and then send that voice sample in and also send in whether or not your sample was positive or negative in terms of the real COVID test. Mm. And by working through that process, comparing all those coughs and all these samples of breathing, et cetera, they're still at the point where they think they're at about that 98, 98.5% accuracy level. But more importantly, it can give you a result very quickly. So you can do the cough and once that app is developed further, do the cough and then see almost straight away have I got COVID-19? Yeah, well, so this is part of active research. Active research, but more so, I think one of the secrets we've talked about before, if the technology can get to the point where it can pick it up quickly, this will be a really effective defence. Yeah, well, it's about um, being able to pick it up quickly so you can act quickly. People say machines are taking over the world and running people out of jobs. Well, at least lawyers of the world are safe, surely. Matt, surely robots couldn't do the work of a lawyer. 
would you trust a robot lawyer more than your own lawyer? I don't want to make any comments here. I don't want to get the backlash from solicitors out there across the world. <laughs> oh, there's a whole run of jokes here to come. but uh... <laughs> I'm trying to leave them alone. <laughs> what actually happened with this particular story was that a young student was getting parking fines and he couldn't afford to pay the parking fines. The logic might have been stop parking in illegal places, but we are talking about millennials here and obviously as both parents as we are, trying to talk to teenagers about doing something silly Mm. is a difficult process. So he kept parking illegally, kept getting these parking fines, and then he started sending in letters to try and get out of the parking fines, and he found he didn't have a very good success rate because he was speaking in normal English rather than legal English. Legal speak, yeah. (laughs) That's right. So what do you do if you're a millennial and you've got lots of parking fines built up? You ask mum and dad for money to pay them, or you develop an app and try and see if you can make a bit of money out of it. So this particular guy has developed an app called Do Not Pay, and he touts as the world's first robot lawyer. And so what it does is you dictate, or even type in if you want, the problem. So you say, I've got these parking fines, here are the details of it, and then it goes through and basically uses some artificial intelligence to convert plain English into legal speak. (laughs) And then basically drafts a letter for you to send off and say, I want to get out of this parking fine or whatever it might be. So rather than go and hire an expensive lawyer to try and do something that might be just drafting the letter correctly, the idea of this app, which is not free, by the way, but the idea of this app is that you can then go and get that first draft. You might still need to engage a solicitor at some point down the track, but at least you get that first part out of the way. Legal beagles out there are probably tied up with a lot of stuff that's much more important than negotiating people's parking fines. There's a lot of petty sort of court trial sort of stuff that must go on that people don't want to tie up their time with. So a well-worded letter probably saves a lot of time and effort. And it's interesting because you're spot on. Solicitors actually saying, this is a good thing. I thought they might feel just a touch threatened by the whole concept. But they're saying exactly as you're saying there, it's good to get people a little bit more engaged in the whole legal process and not tying up solicitors who have studied for many years and have got all these precedents under their belt and then they get tied up with a parking fine. So it's actually good from that perspective to say, well, let's get some of these robot lawyers to go and do a bit of the work. The next thing is a bit more interesting. They're actually doing some trials where they're getting robot judges. Now, this isn't happening in the real world yet. They're only just trialing the concept. So what they do with a robot judge is they let both sides of the argument put their case forward to the robot judge simultaneously while the process is going through a normal court system, through a normal judge, a normal system that you would expect to see. But before the whole trial starts, the AI robot predicts what's going to happen out of the trial and what that decision would that robot judge would be Mm. just based on the information that's presented to it. And then the process runs, the whole trial goes through the process. At the end of it, they're saying, okay, let's see what happened now compared to what the robot judge said. And at the moment, the robot judge is getting about 95% of the cases the same as going through the full trial process. Did you say 90%? 95. 95, sorry. 95%. My goodness. See, I was a little bit distracted there. I was imagining um, something like um, number five, you know, from uh, that movie Short Circuit, wearing a wig uh, with a whole trying to bang a gavel and all that sort of stuff. So 95%, that's a pretty good sort of a hit rate, yeah? I think it would be compulsory for these robot judges to wear wigs. I think that would only be fair enough. But that is interesting, isn't it? And so I think the idea here is that long term, they're trying to get to the point where they'll say, go to a robot judge first, put your information in, submit that, and you'll get a decision. If both parties can live with that decision, that's it. Walk away and you've saved a whole heap of court time. 
If you don't like it, sure, there's an appeal process. I imagine that that will be made easier to go to the human process and go through mm. the costs and the time frame associated with that. But if you can get it right 95% of the time, then presumably you're getting to the point where both parties are going, oh, well, I'll live with that because it's probably going to be the same when it goes through the whole human process. And for that 5%, there's still that appeals process, like you said. Yeah, I think that would be exactly right, where anyone can appeal the process. But in sometimes you just say, well, I'm not over the moon with that decision, but I can live with it. And I think that's if both sides kind of say, I can live with it and not over the moon, then it's probably a good decision. Well, it'll be interesting to see the if it catches on in the, the legal system. Sometimes people need a little incentive in order to get a little more sustainable. That'd be the role of government, perhaps. A little bit of incentive, shall we say. California continues to surge forward with environmental action, which is great news. A Californian panel has backed a mandate to install solar infrastructure for new buildings, Matt. And it's interesting when you talk about some incentive, this one's not an incentive per se. This one's going to be mandatory. Mm. So it will be mandatory if this completes the legal process, the regulatory process, it will be mandatory in California for all new buildings to have solar power and battery storage. This is where people are logically going anyway. I think people are when they're building new buildings, putting in solar, often putting in batteries as well. But some builders choose not to for a whole range of reasons. It might be financial. They may not believe in the whole concept of climate change, but for whatever reason, they don't do it. But California is at the point now where they're saying, no, it's not good enough for the builders or the owners or the people backing this project Mm. to make that decision, we're just going to make it compulsory. That'll be it. This is a fantastic bit of news. Uh, Having said that, any building that's already in the planning process won't have this rule applied to it. But most of those planning processes are are done within, say, a six-month, maybe a 12-month process. So that'll mean basically probably in a year's time, every new building built throughout California will have solar panels and will have batteries. Now, Australia, we're quite good. We're In certain sections of Australia in particular, we are world leaders in rooftop solar in this country in terms of residential rooftop solar. Mm. So that's fantastic. We've done well there. And that's been more the people of Australia, more so than the government of Australia, making those decisions. So well done to the people of Australia. But that's been without any mandatory process. That's been by people saying, this makes sense, there's some logic behind it, and financially it's okay. Once it's mandatory, I dare say California will be leading the world with solar rooftop installations. Yeah, wow. So that's that's big news. I mean, um, we really need governments to take charge on this and, and, and push it as, as mandatory. Um, yeah, it's a no-brainer as far as I'm concerned. The next story is a bone of contention in our house, let me tell you. We've got a couple of subscriptions running currently, but uh, as you'd expect, it's pretty easy to get caught up when the good shows and good movies don't appear on the list that they're providing. You need to subscribe to another provider and then another provider and we end up in a bit of a scramble of subscription providers. Life used to be easier and certainly cheaper when it was all just free to air, Matt. (laughs) No, and I used to get annoyed when I was a kid about the ads that would come on TV and I'd sit there and go, oh, gee, I'm sick of these ads. And my dad would say, son, those ads pay for the show that you're watching. So just accept the fact that you can sit there and watch this TV for free. The alternative is you'd have to pay for it all. Now, my dad's not here with me anymore, but I'm sure he'd be saying, see, I told you, if you stop watching those ads, <laughs> you're going to have to pay for all that TV you watch now, which is exactly the case we're in. And subscription services in particular, which obviously most of those are, are predicted to rise by more than 58% from the end of last year to the end of 2024. Pretty large increase, given the fact that 
most people you feel like are already watching some form of streaming, for example, some form of subscription. Mm. But you're right, there are so many. And I did the calculations once for another article I wrote probably six months ago. And if I subscribed to everything that was available in Australia, the cost to me was over $300 per month. So you're obviously not going to do everything. You're going to pick the ones that make sense to you, but you lose track of them. And so what you need is an app for that because, of course, why not? There's an app for everything. So (laughs) there is actually an app available that allows you to track it. There's actually a website as well, trackmysubs.com. You basically put in all your subscriptions. So it's a manual process. You can just as easily do it in a spreadsheet, do it in a calendar. But this is a way just to track those different subs. Some of them are yearly, some of them are monthly, some of them you get discounts if you go yearly. But when you start to look at them all and start to add up all those different subs, you go, wow, this is costing me a lot of money. Yeah, no, and it's so easy to get caught out because you just click on the app and you go, right, okay, we'll get it. Yeah, I really need to watch The Mandalorian, and so I'm going to have to get Disney. You've got to draw a line. You need something to be a bit more of a, uh, well, a, a policeman, something to be a discerning for you. Yeah, that's right. It gets worse than that, though, because it's not just apps in your viewing or your streaming. Uh, the music? Yeah, that's right, your music. But then some of the physical things. So some of the connected home products, your smart doorbells, for example. Oh, of course. Or your cameras or your baby monitors, all of those, if you want to use all the features of those, often they'll have a subscription. It's only $2 a month, James. It's only $5 a month. It's mm. a, but all those $2, $5, all those start to add up and you can start to pay hundreds of dollars before you realise it. If it was all just on one thing, so for example, if you had an iPhone, you can go and check all your subscriptions in there. Google can get, let you go and check in the Google Play Store, but they're not always just in the one provider because sometimes they're on your TV or your phone or your devices. So that idea of that central app or a central website to track them all, I think makes a lot of sense. Oh, yeah. Look, and uh, my younger brother, he convinced me to uh, download Strava the other day, and so I did. You know, I've already got Garmin running on my phone already, and that's been tracking my activity. But now I've got now two things tracking my activity. So that's all just so he can see how I'm going with my activity as well <laughs> and, and pay out on me when I've been lazy. Um <laughs> Imagine when you get that watch that'll track your BMI as well and you can send that through to your brother. Well, since lockdown here, I've been turning into a pudding and doing nothing about it. And so, well, at least the people at Strava are happy. That's right. They're lining their pockets. I won't even buy a pair of shoes without trying them on first. But apparently now buying secondhand cars online is pretty common. Matt, this is the thing. How is it a thing? Well, it's scary, isn't it? You've got to kick the tyres. Every expert knows if you're going to buy a car... You've got to kick the tyres. Sit in the driver's seat. I once, uh, there was a Mitsubishi Mirage and I sat in it and I thought, oh, yeah, that'll be great. And when I sat in it, I realised I'm just way too big to sit in the Mitsubishi Mirage. This was way back in the early 90s when I was buying my first car. And yeah, <laughs> sitting in the car, that was my lesson that you've got to sit in the car. That's a, that's a good point. That's practical. There are so many times I've seen people, I've gone with friends to help them buy cars and I see some of the things they do and I just don't understand them. Oh, better pop the bonnet. Let's have a look under there. What are you looking for? Oh, you know, see if there's an engine there, I guess. I mean, what, what do you look for when you look under the bonnet? And again, a bit like kicking the tyres. What are you expecting to happen when you kick the tyres? It explodes or it falls apart? So for some reason, we seem obsessed that we can't buy a second-hand car in particular on some sort of online service. We're getting to the point now, believe it or not, where we're comfortable buying new cars online, especially with lockdown. People are ordering new cars online. Some car manufacturers, that's their method of sale. They're saying, we don't have showrooms, we don't have test drives. If you want the car, you just order it online. But carsales.com.au have been selling cars for a long time. But what their research has shown is that 37% of consumers are happy to buy a second-hand vehicle. But 
only 1% of those consumers are happy to buy a second-hand vehicle sight unseen. I mean, physically sight unseen. They might have virtually seen it. They might have looked at some photos. They might have looked at a video. But only 1% of consumers are happy to buy it sight unseen. With lockdowns, what they're trying to do is change that whole paradigm for people and the way they buy things. So you've got to put some things in place. So they've started to introduce a few little things. For example, they do a remote check. So NRMA, for example, have done that for years, where you can pay NRMA a certain amount of money, and they'll go and check it, and they'll do something a bit more professional than kick the tyres. They'll actually check it over properly, give you a, a check. So they'll do that for you. Then they'll give you a seven-day money-back guarantee. Now, I don't know how that works. If you're selling the car, someone buys it, and they want to get their money back after seven days, you go, hold on, I've got the money, I've banked it, I've spent it, thanks very much. <laughs> I've spent it, yeah. How are you going to get it back? So whether car sales are holding onto that money for that seven-day time frame, I'm not sure. But what they're trying to do, I actually like when people try and change the mould, swim upstream is a common expression that I use, where they're trying to do things a bit different. They know that people don't like buying cars online, second-hand cars online. What can we do about it? So doing the check and doing the seven-day money-back guarantee straight away makes people feel a bit more comfortable. But even with those two things, what are the chances, you think? What are the chances of people staying to buy their second-hand cars sight unseen? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a bridge too far for me. It's just too much of a leap. You know, <laughs> if I can't bear, buy a pair of shoes online, <laughs> then, then I'm not buying a car online. <laughs> so you're the target market. I'm kicking the... T- car sales needs to con- contact you <laughs> and say, James, what would it take... For you to buy a second-hand car online, if they can get you across the line, they've nailed it. Well, if they can drop the car off in my driveway, I can sit in it and then say, no, no, this one's not for me. I'm just too big for it. (laughs) (laughs) So an augmented reality car seat is what James needs. They need you giving them ideas, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) So anyway, it'll be interesting to see. New car sales, I think, will continue to go that way, but second-hand car sales... I'm a bit the same as you. It just makes you feel a bit nervous because there are people out there trying to have a land of you mm. and a second-hand car that's yeah. broken and beaten up and, and covered up. Has it been in an accident? Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> Not in the last day. You can see the bog. <laughs> that's right. Get the magnet and run it over. It doesn't stick to this part of the car here. What's going on? Ah, <laughs> oh, goodness me. And just like that, folks, we're done for yet another week. Matt, congratulations on another successful remote broadcast right now. As per usual, you've been a beacon for us all as we hurtle headlong into the future. I'm James Eddy, and I've been your host today. We both look forward to you logging on again in another week. See you later.